So um, we said our prayer earlier. We're, we're going to have, or at least I'm going to offer five reflections, one today, four tomorrow, and then Robin Neeson will offer the final one uh, on Sunday. The, the, the theme is Mary at home with Mary. And so I came up with this idea just because of the course of the past year or so, been having a lot of different prayers or reflections on Our Lady. And so sometimes I want to take all those ideas and use them. So I figured, well, we're going to try to use them here, and I realize they do connect. How well they're going to connect, I don't know, but we're going to give it our best shot. My goal is to, to not speak for too long, um, maybe 25 minutes uh, to 30 minutes, maybe shorter, maybe a little longer, and then during the day, tomorrow, giving you time to reflect and meditate. So I'm not going to sit here. I mean, six talks is a lot of talks, so to be able to have just brief points for reflection. And so today, I want to start with looking at Mary and one of the titles of Mary that we hear a lot, but we probably don't fully understand. You know, we normally think of Our Lady, whether it be uh, in Scripture or in iconography and statues or in apparitions. She's usually pretty somber and usually pretty prayerful and very, very holy, not necessarily mean, but a very kind of serious, prayerful person. And while I'm sure this is true, if we really look at the tradition, we realize that there's an aspect of Mary that's central that I don't really think necessarily is in accord with this. Not necessarily against it, but doesn't fully, this title or this way of looking at Mary is a more full representation. So we look at the rosary, we have the different sets of mysteries. What is the first one called? The joyful mysteries. The joyful mysteries. And all of those, unlike the other ones, are all really centered on Mary. She's the central figure. And so Mary is connected to this idea of joy or being joyful. And in fact, the title that really sort of inspired this, if you look through the different titles of Mary and the different masses we have, it's Mary, cause of our joy. Mary, cause of our joy. And then I thought, well, do we normally think of Mary as that? What do we mean by Mary as cause of our joy? And the reality is, is how can Mary cause joy in us if she's not joyful herself? Mary is always very serious. How can she be the cause of our joy? So I started thinking of Mary, who at the time would have been 14 or 15, and Jesus grew up as a young woman, teenagers in early 20s. To think of the, the young women that I've met, whether they be college students or religious sisters who are young, that were the most joyful. And then to sort of use that to help me understand what Mary might have been like. What would you have done if you had encountered Mary whenever she was 15 years old, or she was 18, or she was 21 or 22? A joyful young woman whole young woman sort of embodying what Mary would be. And so I, I want to do today is just sort of look at this idea of joy. More than happiness, joy is something that comes much deeper. It's lasting. It's not just sort of happiness at an event. It's the joy of existence, the joy of living in the power of the Spirit. And then sort of take it and apply it to Christian marriages and families. It's kind of the way I'm going to try to do all these talks is to take the theme, look at it in the life of Mary, and then sort of apply it to our own lives, our own marriages. 
Well, the first is something that I actually talked about during Christmas time, is looking at the Annunciation, the joyful mystery. Uh, so often we, we see these images of, maybe even over there, Mary and the angels appearing to Mary, and yeah, we see the fear of Mary, but Mary's usually on her little kneeler, and she has her book, and she's praying. But if it's a joyful mystery, that's probably not exactly what it was like. And so in this article that I had read, that I'll share some of the main ideas, one of the things you have to understand is that all of Israel was waiting for the Messiah. All of Israel was waiting for the Messiah. And every young woman, every young virgin, realized that it's possible that they could be the one who was chosen. They were going to be the one who was chosen. No one knew who it was going to be. And so it's sort of like all the girls in the kingdom and the prince is going to go find the princess. Everyone was excited. They wanted to be chosen. Every young woman wanted to be chosen to be the mother of the Messiah, Mary included. Mary included. So this joy, this excitement at the prospect of being chosen. And so maybe she didn't fully understand what it would entail. But when that angel appeared to her and said what he did, she had some idea what's going on. Realizing, oh my goodness, you know, I got the golden ticket to go to Charlie and the Chocolate, the chocolate Factory. The excitement that she would have experienced. Again, not fully understanding it, but to know that she was chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. And this, this theologian, his name is Paulo Prosperi, he's a priest, notices that in Mary's fiat, be it done unto me according to thy word, where we normally think, be it done unto me according to thy word, I am the handmaid. Well, he notices in the Greek, and I'm not a Greek expert at all, so I'm just trusting in him, that the fiat, be it done unto me, is in what's called the optative mood, which expresses desire or want. So what does that mean? Be it done unto me. Yes. Let it happen. I want it. I want this. And so it's the excitement of a young woman who maybe fully doesn't know what's coming up, but is so filled with joy and excitement at the prospect, even though she doesn't know what's coming, of being the mother of the Messiah. I think it radically changes the way that we understand the Annunciation. Instead of, oh my goodness, I have to be the mother of the Messiah. Like some sort of a burden of obedience is put on her. But instead, in looking at the text, there's this really great desire and passion to fulfill this vocation that she was chosen. And, and the, from that, notice, she doesn't sit here and think all about it. She makes haste to go to Elizabeth. Yeah, because she wants to help her and all these nice, pious things. But she's so excited to share the good news. Imagine if, if you were chosen for some one of a million position, and you wanted to go tell someone. Figure she told Joseph first, but the excitement that she would have had running to say, I heard the good news you have, here's my good news, and to be able to share that. That's why we call the visitation a joyful mystery. We have something that good, good that happens to us, and this is exceptional good. This is like winning the lottery or, I don't know, being chosen for something really significant. A desire to share the good news. And, of course, not only is she excited and Elizabeth are excited, but the baby in Elizabeth's womb is excited, leaping for joy. So there's joy and excitement all over the place. The Magnificat, even though we know that it comes from a sort of derived or inspired by some Old Testament passages, 
we, we were so used to reading it at evening prayer or singing it in this sort of somber chanted tone. Oh, that is a joyful song. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices, rejoices in God my Savior. So Mary would have expressed it in a very joyful, smiling, passionate, cheerful tone. It's joyful praise. Joy for all the things the Lord has done for her. Of course, we have the picture or the depiction of the nativity. And there's Mary and Joseph and they're sitting there and baby Jesus is glowing. And they're sitting praying like this. I'm not saying they didn't do that. But I, I, I've never had a child, thank goodness. But I, I know that it can be a painful thing. But the joy of a mother, those first moments of holding the child, that's like the, isn't it like the highest joy you can have? Particularly probably your first, firstborn. You may be a little bit stunned, but you're holding the firstborn. Why would Mary not have experienced that? The joy of being able to hold the Christ child and looking at Jesus and maybe in some ways seeing God looking back at her and delighting in being able to hold the Christ child. And as time went on, of course, the Christ child was smiling at her. She's smiling back. And what mother does not smile at her child? Smile of joy, of affirmation of being. And then I really think you could also see that this joy in the Holy Family. Again, we think that the Holy Family is like a monastery. Well, I'm sure they were prayerful, but that had to be a, a real joyful place. And, and, and I think of it, you know, as much as Joseph was human, and, and unlike Mary, who was conceived immaculately, and Jesus was the Son of God, Joseph like, had nothing to complain about. He never had a wife to nag him. The food was always good. The kid never left crap all over the house, never talked back to him. So when Joseph was all his buddies and never complained of their wives and their obnoxious children, Joseph was probably just sitting there, shaking his head. <laughs> so Mary was always joyful. Jesus was joyful. Joseph was joyful too. <laughs> Joseph was joyful too. Yes, absolutely. Everybody was happy. Not that they didn't have their difficult times, but I really think Joseph would have been joyful. So, so if you look at that, at these, these mysteries, but then the whole gospel message, joy is central to the gospel message. And I think, and most of us probably agree, the surest sign of holiness. You know, someone who's very somber and, and serious face, generally not holy. It could be holy. But we, we, we were saying to Teresa Bible, to save us from sour-faced saints is the person who is joyful. And, and I really want to encourage you, if you get a chance, to, to go back to Pope Francis's first encyclical, Evangelium Gaudium, the joy of the gospel. The joy of the gospel. And he talks so much about the role that joy should have in our living the faith. And I don't necessarily want to read all of it, but I kind of will. In the chapter, paragraph 5, he goes throughout the Gospels and really makes references to these calls to rejoice or to be joyful. One of them, right at the beginning, is one I didn't even mention because I wanted to mention it here. He says, the Gospel, radiant with the glory of Christ's cross, constantly invites us to rejoice. A few examples will suffice. Rejoice is the angel's greeting to Mary. Rejoice! You get to be, you're the, you're the one who shows him, come on down. <laughs> Pope Francis doesn't say that. 
Mary's visit to Elizabeth makes John leap for joy in the mother's womb. In her song of praise, Mary proclaims, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. When Jesus begins his ministry, John cries out, For this reason my joy has been fulfilled. Jesus himself rejoiced in the spirit. His message brings us joy. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Our Christian joy drinks of the wellspring of his brimming heart. He promises his disciples, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He then goes on to say, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. The disciples rejoice at the sight of the risen Christ. In the Acts of the Apostles, we read that the first Christians ate their food with glad and generous hearts. Wherever the disciples went, there was great joy. Even amid persecution, they continued to be filled with joy. The newly baptized eunuch went on his way rejoicing, while Paul's jailer and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. So here's the last phrase. Why should we not also enter into this great stream of joy? Now granted, the reason is, is because we beat ourselves up and we look at the negative side, the glass half empty, and I am I'm the one who's the most guilty of that. I'm sure we all sort of know what it's like to be able to, 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 to resist joy. Or sometimes say, hey, pick up the cross and be miserable or focus on all of our problems. But joy should be the distinguishing characteristic of the Christian and distinguishing characteristic of holiness. And I think a distinguishing characteristic of Christian Catholic families. They ought to be joyful. Now, does it mean they're not going to suffer? Doesn't mean we're going to be shiny, happy people all the time. But there's got to be that deep experience of joy that flows over. So think of it. Your wedding day is supposed to be the great day of joy in your life. Having children and, and watching them grow up and delighting in them. I read this article this summer about the most important words that you can say to your kids are not, I'm proud of you or you did well, but I love to watch you play. I love to watch you play. And so watching the father, seeing the children playing, how beautiful that is. That's actually a scientific study that was done, um, or some sociological study, to delight, not in what the kid does, but just who the child is. Imagine Mary delighting and watching Jesus play, and also realizing he's never going to break anything, so probably also very good. <laughs> and then the times the families get together, and the holidays, and the good times of, of being able to be together, of course, we have bad things that happen too, we have those times that really mark out the most important times of our lives. But so often, we do have to fight for it. We've got to be able to fight for joy. Stress of work, of children, I think technology, and particularly social media these days, robs us of our joy. We see that a lot in young people. Consumerism, thinking that purchasing this thing is gonna make me happy, instead of a joy that comes from a much deeper source. So how can Mary teach us joy as, as individuals, but also as married couples and as families? Well, the first is, is probably the most important, is to teach us to be more open to the Spirit. The Spirit descended upon Mary. She was um, filled with the Spirit, filled with grace. And that joy is one of the fruits that comes from the Spirit. And the more that we fan into flame the gift that was given us to baptism. 
The Holy Spirit was given to you at your wedding. The epiclesis, the Holy Spirit comes down. It is the bond that unites you together. You've been given this great gift that should be, it's not only the, the, the source of the indissolubility of your marriage, but it also ought to be the great source of joy. But it's, it's like this wedding gift that you were given that you forget that you had for the first five years. You pick it up and you said, boy, this is a really great gift, whatever it is. Why haven't we used this? The most important thing, though, on a, from a theological perspective, and why we call Mary as the cause of our joy, or the, the, the source of our joy, is that she brings Jesus. She's the cause of our joy. She is the, the incarnation. She's the instrumental cause that brings Jesus, who, through bringing us, being the instrument of salvation, is the joy, the joy of the resurrection that we are going to be celebrating in just over a week. But I think that, that on a practical level, from my own experience and, and reflection, this is the, the most important one. Not from a theological perspective, but from a practical perspective. Mary teaches us how to love. How to love. Not just to love, but to also to be loved. Because Mary allowed Jesus to love her. Mary allowed um, Joseph to love her. And so let's take a moment to sort of reflect on the, the genesis of joy. So often we say, I want to pursue being joyful. I'm going to be joyful today. And I'm sure we can do that. We can will joy to a certain degree, but I don't think it really lasts. And maybe I'm wrong here, but I don't think joy is something that, that we can produce in ourselves. Joy is the byproduct of loving others and being loved. Yeah. Byproduct of it. So if we seek it ourselves, I'm going to wake up and be joyful today. Well, you're going to probably fall flat on your face. But if you wake up and say, I'm going to love others today, I'm going to put others first, and I'm going to allow myself to be loved, oh, then you'll find joy. Then you'll find joy. And so that's the thing is, is first of all, is loving and being and allowing ourselves to be loved, to be delighted in and Mary would have done this better than anyone. We're going to see this. Like the wedding of Cana, Mary's awareness, putting others first. The love she showed to Jesus. The love she showed to Joseph. We're going to look at that tomorrow. Um, and the, the impact that she would have had on others. But not just loving them because, oh, I have to. Loving them in order to produce joy in them. To make them happy. And this is from from Pope Francis, again, Amoris Laetitia, you know, so that, that, that rejoicing in love, the joy that comes from love, his, his encyclical. This is paragraph 129, which is probably my favorite paragraph there, partially because it mentions my favorite movie. Pope Francis and I have the same favorite movie, which is good. He says, since we are made for love, we know that there is no greater joy than that of sharing good things. Sharing good things could be sharing a gift, sharing yourself, sharing your talents. Give, take, and treat yourself well, Sirach. The most intense joys in life arise when we are able to elicit joy in others. Think of that. When you're always joyful, I'm making this person joyful. I'm making my husband joyful, my spouse joyful, my children joyful, my pastor joyful, whatever it is. As a foretaste of heaven, and so joy is that, that sharing it, heaven. We can think of the lovely scene in the film Babette's Feast. How many, yeah, how many of you have seen Babette's Feast? Yeah. 
Babbitt's feast. But when the generous cook, the generous cook, I'm not gonna explain the whole, you got, it really is the most Catholic film ever made. She cooks this big meal. The generous cook receives a grateful hug and praise. Ah, how you will delight the angels. So she cooks this massive meal. And, and how you will delight the angels. Because she cooked this meal, this complete self-gift. Complete self-gift to be able to give joy to this, this family or these people who couldn't appreciate it. Grumpy, grumpy people who became much less grumpy afterwards. Also, they drank about five bottles of wine each. But, <laughs> but here, here, it is a joy and a great consolation to bring delight to others to see them enjoying themselves. That's so true. Like for me, I, I like to cook for people. I like to cook because, well, I think I, I do a decent job at it, but I like to see other people enjoy it. And some of you may say, well, I like to play music to bring joy to others. Or I may like to to paint to bring joy to others. And, but what is it is we are doing something out of love for another person, gratuitously, knowing that it will bring them joy, in turn then brings joy to us. This joy, the fruit of eternal love, is not that of the vain and self-centered, but of lovers who delight in the good of those whom they love, who give freely to them and thus bear good fruit. And so, so joy is, is sort of the, the, the fruit that comes from loving. So if we pursue loving others to give them joy, well, then we're going to receive joy ourselves. So, so there's this connection of, okay, well, here's love, or being loved, or giving love. Here's joy. Although I, I think in the middle that there is something else. And I think it's going to be gratitude. That, that maybe gratitude, maybe there's, there's like joy radiates from love, but gratitude is like a magnifying glass. It makes it much brighter. That we are thankful for the person that we get to love. We are thankful if we're on the receiving end. Because the person who receives is also experiencing joy. The person is being loved. But if we're thankful for it, love as an expression, thank, gratitude as an expression of love to the gift received. And so, I mean, the gratitude is, I, I am so thankful of love that what you have given to me. And so, joy flows from this. Gift and love, thanksgiving, joy. So that's the thing. Joy is not something I don't think that you can achieve, you can attain, you can work towards. But it is that byproduct of other things. And so we know Mary never lived for herself. Constantly doing things another reason, to make Joseph happy. Right? Joseph was very joyful. To make Jesus happy. And so this, so you can imagine, it's like a radiation that comes off of our being. And within a marriage where the man and the woman are loving each other, or are loving their children, off of their marriage, there's going to be a radiation that comes from it. It's a light. And what does that light do? It attracts others. It attracts others. Well, I wonder what they have. And then you're going to want what I have is I have the love of the heart of Christ. I have Mary, who's at the center or here guiding me in my, my marriage and my home. So it's not proselytism. <laughs> not going out and saying, hey, you better believe in Jesus and Mary. But allow that, that, that joy to be the light that irradiates out and draws others. And so there's someone I've quoted before, Madeleine Delbrel, who's a French 
Catholic, probably can, uh, canonized soon. Did a lot of work with the poor in these little atheist villages in France after World War II. And so, yeah, we want to attract others to Christ, but there's another attraction that I'm going to show you the quote and I'll show you why it applies. She says, quote, we must continually strive to make the church lovable. We must continually strive to avoid anything that would needlessly render Christ's love indiscernible to the church. It is a sin of omission not to give witness to the fact that the joy of being a child of God is something we possess in her, our mother. And so often, when people see the church, oh, it's oppressive, it's mean, the church is an institution, a bunch of rules. But guess what? How many churches do we have what is one church? How many churches do we have here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. The domestic church. So there's the domestic church. You're supposed to be a little microcosm of participation of the one church. And so, yeah, fine. The Vatican says something, people get angry. Cardinal Schornborn talks like a complete and total madman, and people get angry. But you can all be witnesses of that joy and that gift of love that radiates out. And so this is what she's saying. Don't let the Vatican have to do it, or don't let the diocese do it. Don't let the, the parish do it. You do it. Because the family is the domestic church. It has to start there. Creating that community where we, we, we give ourselves in love to each other. We receive others. We affirm them, love them. And from that joy, it's the, the power of positive people, the power of living in the way that Mary would have lived and animated the faith. It's especially true because this joy is important, but, but the trials are going to come. Lent always comes. Winter always comes. But it's going to be that love and the joy, the warmth that helps you get through it. And the, the, the killer is the trials come and people shut down. They start living for themselves because of resentment or pain or anger instead of still living for the other and serving the other and allowing that to be the source that, that brings hope and brings light to, um, to the family. Uh, that place, that safe haven, the domestic church where people are seen, known, and loved, where there's the joy and the gratitude that comes from it. So, and Mary is the, the examples. How Mary would have done that in her own life, showing us how we can do it in our own lives and our own family. So what I want to do is just, and then we're going to go to Mass, and then we're going to have time for adoration for those who want to come, just try to offer a few points of reflection that y'all can talk about, and I'll try to do that for each talk. So here are my four questions for prayer and reflection. You can do this individually, you can do it as a couple. First, what are the sources of joy in your marriage and your family? What are the sources of joy? Or, or, in fact, maybe I should say, what are you doing to be a source of joy in your family? What, what are you doing to, to have that joy radiate? Number two, and maybe this is best for your spouse to answer, what do you do to allow yourself to be robbed of joy? Or, or when do you find that the joy when you maybe close it on yourself? when you allow yourself to be robbed of joy. Number three, think of it in your own life, whether it be young people or old people, or couples. Individuals 
or who are examples of joyful people that attract others to Christ or the church? Who's a family that we like to emulate? Who's a family or an individual that maybe has drawn you closer to Christ? And then I'd really say, you know, spend some time on the joyful mysteries, going through each of them and really trying to see and imagine Mary being joyful in each of those situations. What that would have been like. Instead of just her kind of walking around with her little hands closed like this, in a prayerful gesture. What, what would that have looked like? So spend some time, maybe pray the rosary together, maybe pray the joyful mysteries. But really spend some time reflecting on that. So that's it for the first talk. So with my three-minute introduction, it's 25 minutes total. So it is 7.50, I think. How many people are planning on coming to Mass and receiving communion? Why don't you raise your hands? Well, let me we'll wrap this up first, and then we'll count. So I want to make sure we'll wrap this up first. So let's close the glory be. Glory be to the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be, for Amen.